Hi, this is filmmaker and author Michael Morin. Whenever I'm not riding my bike around the Davis campus, I'm listening to 90.3 KDVS College Radio right here. FM. Cool. This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to Radio Parallax. We have a couple of very special guests on today's program. We're looking forward to speaking with them in our second and third segments. The first is Charles Lewis founder and executive director of the Center for Public Integrity, the nonprofit, nonpartisan watchdog organization that has produced the Buying of the President 1996, the Buying of the President 2000, and currently the Buying of the President 2004, who's really bankrolling Bush and his Democratic challengers and what they expect in return. Stay tuned for that. And in our third segment today, we're going to speak with a legend of the adult cinema. Christy Canyon will talk to us a bit about the adult film and entertainment industry, of which she's been a part for 20 years. This is a portion of the U.S. economy that is surprisingly robust economically, if semi-underground. Christy Kenyon's written an autobiography titled Lights, Camera, Sex. She'll be talking with us a bit about that in our third segment today. Well, let's start out with some email, as we like to do. This one came to us from Sharon. And describes, it actually came out about Christmas time, but I, I think it's still relevant, describes some locally available Barbie dolls here in the greater Sacramento region. You may wish to uh, sort of review some of these choices before you go off and buy one for your, um, for your daughter. There's the Eldorado Hills Barbie. Uh, this is a princess Barbie, which is sold only at Nordstrom's or the Pavilions. She comes with an assortment of Kate Spade handbags, a Lexus SUV, and a cookie-cutter house. This one's available with or without a tummy tuck and facelift. A workaholic Ken is also available. Then there is the East Sack Barbie. This yuppie model comes with either a BMW convertible or Volvo wagon and includes a Starbucks travel cup and exclusive gym membership. You can also get a real estate magnate Ken and a private school skipper, but you might be advised you may not be able to afford any of these. There is a Woodland Barbie model, which comes dressed in her own Wrangler jeans, two sizes too small, with a NASCAR t-shirt. This one also includes a Tweety Bird tattoo on her shoulder. Uh, other features include a six-pack of Coors Light and a Hank Williams Jr. CD set. This model is apparently able to spit over five feet and can kick the mullet-haired Ken's ass when she's drunk. If you purchase her pickup truck, Separately, you will get a Confederate flag bumper sticker absolutely free. A uh, South Sack Barbie model is available. It comes with a stroller and infant doll. Optional accessories include a GED and bus pass. Apparently, the Gangsta Ken and his 79 Caddy were available previously, but they're now very difficult to find since the addition of the infant. And, of course, you knew it was coming. There is a Davis Barbie available. This doll is made of actual tofu, has long, straight brown hair, wears no makeup, 
does wear Birkenstocks with white socks, prefers that you call her Willow, and does not want or need a Ken doll. All right, we like to do some myth-busting on this program. We told you last year, uh, one thing we were trying to, a myth we were trying to expose was the idea that the Great Wall of China was visible from the moon. Well, it isn't. I forget how the story got out, but it's been propagated ever since. You cannot see the Great Wall of China from the moon. When I remember hearing that as a kid, I thought, that's bunk. It may be thousands of miles long, but it's only, you know, a fairly small distance across. How could it be seen from the moon? Well, it can't. Turns out it can't even be seen from space either. And the Chinese government has decided to stop propagating the myth that their most famous creation was visible from space. This was uh, The myth was shattered when Yang Liwei returned from his 21-hour space jaunt last year. The Chinese decided to finally admit, no, you can't see it from space. We are so far unable to confirm the fact that Wang Zhang, delegate to the Chinese People's political consultative conference, the advisory body to the national legislature, listened to Radio Parallax when he decided to go forward and do what he could to eliminate this falsehood in Chinese elementary school textbooks. All right, miscellaneous item. This came off the web, off Newsmax.com, 11-2103. General Tommy Franks said that if the United States is hit with a weapon of mass destruction that inflicts large casualties, the Constitution will likely be discarded in favor of a military form of government. The former commander of the Military Central Command warned that if terrorists succeeded in using such a weapon, well, we may just abandon our Republican form of government. Franks was the first high-ranking official to openly speculate that the Constitution could be scrapped in favor of a military form of government in the U.S. This was an exclusive interview he gave to the men's lifestyle magazine, Cigar Aficionado. And I think this juxtaposes rather nicely with an article from The Onion Calendar of last year, from the News and Brief section, new pompous ass magazine to compete with Cigar Aficionado. Upscale consumers who enjoy cigars, wine, and the finer things in life will have a new magazine to enjoy beginning next month when pompous ass hits newsstands. Targeting the coveted 23 to 60-year-old pompous ass demographic, the new monthly magazine is expected to compete directly with Cigar Aficionado for advertising dollars. And Dick Cheney's company, Halliburton, uh, of course, has been suspected of overcharging you and I, the U.S. taxpayer, for the Iraqi war machine that uh, we are funding. Um, The Pentagon is planning to withhold about $300 million in payments to Halliburton because of possible overcharging for meals served to troops in Iraq and Kuwait. Dick Cheney's former company on a multi-billion dollar contract to provide services such as food, housing, laundry, and mail has become rather controversial. But it's interesting to me that according to the AP, this withholding won't affect Halliburton's bottom line. Company officials told Wall Street analysts last week that the company was taking in about a billion dollars a month from its operations in Iraq, and it has set aside $141 million to settle the overcharging allegations. Now, $141 million on a billion dollars a month means that they had to set aside what they earned in about 100 hours. Yeah, that's right. 
four and a quarter days worth of earnings. And we're pleased to report that the Bush administration, probably the most corrupt United States administration since that of Warren G. Harding, is now reeling from allegations, one-two punches, from first former Treasury Secretary Paul O'Neill, who said that uh, soon after the Bush administration took charge of the government and he was part of the cabinet, they immediately focused in on Iraq. Well, now uh, counterterrorism coordinator for Presidents Clinton and George W. Bush, Richard A. Clark, has confirmed what Paul O'Neill had to say and takes it quite a few steps further. We're going to talk at length about this, but let's detour into a few more, uh, a few other issues before we delve into that. I met a man a couple days ago while working as a physician who was cured, cured of his cancer thanks to experimental stem cell therapy. Stem cell-based therapy eliminated the cancer in this man, and he was expressing the fact that uh, he was dismayed that the best minds in this country were now going overseas to do stem cell research thanks to restrictions placed upon it here in the U.S. by the Bush administration. California, which usually been on the receiving end of an awful lot of uh, Bush administration directives, is actually trying to fund an initiative here for the November ballot that will raise $3 billion to fund stem cell research here in California in direct challenge to federal directives. We're going to have that gentleman come on and talk about his, his particular case, and I think that's going to make some electrifying listening in the weeks to come. Uh, other stem cell-related items have appeared in the news of late. Apparently, stem cells can generate hair, offering hope for the bald. Experiments in mice have shown that transplanting stem cells into other mice have produced hair and all its associated skin structures. We should note that normal balding is not caused by the complete loss of a hair follicle. Bald men have just as many as people with hair. But uh, the problem is the follicle switch to producing colorless, almost invisible, tiny hairs. And in a rather more stunning development, it appears that other research on mice has shown that uh, what's been in the textbooks for the past half century, that female mammals, no matter what they be, are born with all the eggs they will ever have, is apparently not true. Apparently, ovarian stem cells are able to produce new eggs later in life. This has some rather earth-shaking implications for people in the infertility field. Of course, like all the rest of the research into stem cells, things have been gummed up by the belief of right-wing Christian fundamentalists that this kind of research must be stopped. All right, three quick medically-related items. Uh, the first one, of course, involves another slam at the conservatives in government, which I cannot resist. The government has not allowed research into marijuana for, for forever, for decades, unless they're trying to prove that it's harmful. Well, we know there's cannabinoid receptors in the brain. This should have some practical application in understanding them. And it's now turned out that we've figured out what makes people hungry when they smoke pot. At least they figured out which receptor is responsible for it. Well, they've managed to come up with a cannabinoid receptor blocker. It appears to reduce both appetite and the craving for nicotine, thus having an application both to people suffering from obesity and tobacco addiction. Let's see if now in the United States we'll permit some research into this topic. This research was, of course, done in Paris. 
And speaking of Europe, uh, the Europeans have stopped treating ear infections, the otitis media of childhood, so familiar to most many of us. They stopped treating it with antibiotics years ago, and it's now been recommended here in the United States that we do the same. These are new guidelines from the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Family Practice. This is a rather amazing story. I'm going to get some medical people to talk about it today, and we're just going to just going to kind of just mention it and go on. The, uh, the, the most earth-shaking of these three quick items is the fact that according to The Economist magazine, recent research suggests that Alzheimer's disease may be triggered by an infection. A study done of the brains of people with Alzheimer's and people who did not have Alzheimer's, who died about the same age, showed that the Alzheimer's brains appeared to have chlamydia pneumonia, a bacterium. Only one of the non-Alzheimer's brains had that bug in it. This is preliminary research, but my God, if it holds up how earth-shaking this is going to be. In medicine for decades, we argued about whether helicobacter pylori could be the source of stomach ulcers, and it turned out that it was. Instead of now doing operation after operation for stomach ulcers, we now cure it with a course of antibiotics. Wouldn't it be amazing if we could make a dent in most cases of Alzheimer's with antibiotic treatment? which may be one reason to deny it to parents that want their kids to get it for uh, otitis media. Since we spoke to you on last week's program with Dr. Bruce Betts, the Planetary Society talking about developments on Mars, well, the rovers are padding about taking more pictures, showing clear evidence that the rock strata there was laid down at the bottom of a large body of water. It's such cool stuff, and you know we're going to return to that story. But uh, let's see, other items here. New York Times reported uh, last week that in an effort to encourage the use of nuclear energy, the U.S. lent highly enriched uranium to countries all over the world from the 1950s up till 1988. Enough weapons-grade material, in fact, to make a thousand nuclear bombs. And uh, apparently it's still not been returned by such countries as Pakistan, Iran, Israel, and South Africa. We don't expect those to come back anytime soon, so file that one under whoops. Also in the whoops category, the Boston Globe reported that Jason Blair, in publishing his memoir of lying and plagiarizing his way through the New York Times, uh, included at least one section that a reader immediately found bore an uncannily similar passage to a profile of Blair that had appeared in the Boston Globe. Yes, apparently, apparently Jason Blair is not above plagiarizing his own biography. What a guy, huh? You must be tired if you can send me here But I need a break and I want to be a paperback writer Paperback writer All right, we've got some other science stories we want to talk about what we don't have time today. We do want to note that last Thursday, a small asteroid 100 feet across came whizzing just three Earth diameters above our planet. An extremely close call by astronomical standards. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the new t- potentially 10th planet, Sedna, discovered at something like three times the distance of Pluto out in the edge of our solar system, um, and some other stuff. But we don't have time today, so let's, let's defer that. The biggest story of the past week was the matter of Richard Clark. 
When Paul O'Neill said uh, a few months back that uh, the Bush administration was focusing in on Iraq to the exclusion of all of the threats to the U.S., we kind of said, duh. I mean, that's no surprise. As, as we ramped up to war, we were telling you that the intelligence about Iraq was being skewed as it was actively being done last year. Well, now Richard A. Clark comes forward. This is, I believe, the man who was in the Situation Room at the White House on September 11th. He was the head of counterterrorism in the Bush administration. And he comes forward to confirm the fact that Bush wanted to be told in the wake of September 11th, this had something to do with Iraq. In fact, uh, what we're going to do, I think, is take, to, rather than talk about this at length, let's just excerpt for you three minutes that came out of Terry Gross's conversation with Clark that aired on Fresh Air yesterday. On September 12th, uh, we were still in the crisis room, in the situation room, and the president wandered in and wandered about uh, and saw me and pulled me aside with three of my staff and closed the door in a conference room. Now, the president apparently now says he doesn't remember this ever happening. I have these three other staff members who were with me uh, who have all said uh, to newspapers and, and television media that, yes, indeed, it did happen. So first thing is, it did happen, even if the president has a senior moment about it. What did he ask? The White House now says that if the meeting took place, uh, what he was asking was merely that I do due diligence, that I look into all possibilities, that I not assume it was just al-Qaeda. Well, that's not exactly what happened. What happened was he spoke about Iraq, not all possibilities, not Iran, not Hezbollah, not other terrorist groups. He spoke to me in very firm, uh, almost angry tones uh, about the need for me to write a paper about Iraq's role or links. Uh, and I said, well, there aren't any significant links between al-Qaeda uh, and Iraq, uh, and I would doubt very much uh, that there will be any uh, in the intelligence. We've looked at this issue before. We looked at the issue of Iraqi involvement with al-Qaeda before the attacks on 9-11. Uh, and he was very upset by that answer. So we then went off and wrote a memo, and we cleared that memo with the CIA, and we cleared that memo with the FBI. And we sent it up the, uh, the chain to the National Security Advisor and her deputy. The memo came back very quickly uh, with the instructions that we should redo it uh, and update it. And we said, well, wait a minute, how can we update it? it it's brand new. It's, it's got all the latest information. We did it again, uh, it, we sent it back up, and they never showed it to the president because it concluded that there was no Iraqi involvement. Why do you think it was never shown to the president? Well, you know, my impression is that the people around the president don't show him things that don't accord with their views or his views. This is not a White House that is interested in analysis uh, pros and cons, evaluation, they kind of have the conclusions and they want only information that supports the conclusions. Clark, of course, uh, testified before the uh, panel investigating these intelligence lapses. Uh, you know, Clark knows what he's talking about. Rumsfeld said we shouldn't go into Afghanistan in the wake of 9-11 because 
there's no good targets in Afghanistan. Clark pointed out that by spending $100 billion on a wag-the-dog war in Iraq, this is money we do not have to defend America's airports, airplanes, trains, subways, other public transportation, the borders, etc. He notes that by diverting assets in Afghanistan into Iraq, the search for bin Laden was harmed while Al-Qaeda was basically left to uh, regroup. He noted, thirdly, that, uh, that Arab propaganda has been, deli- been given a bonanza. Bin Laden predicted attacks on Muslims, and this represents a public relations disaster throughout the Muslim world and perhaps has brought into reality the allegation that in Iraq there was a confluence of Iraqi and Al-Qaeda forces. Clark is right. He knows what he's talking about. And, uh, well, we'll continue to follow that story with you. You're listening to Radio Parallax. This is KDVS 90.3 FM. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. Stay tuned in our second segment for our interview with Charles Lewis, author of The Buying of the President, 2004. Please. 